I just love seeing you all come in like this. He's talking about the new refiners joining the Severed Patreon page. Just $5 a month and no cranial drill required. Go to patreon.com slash severed pod. Okay, you're all set. Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Welcome back, Refiner. I hope your Audi is having a great holiday season, although you wouldn't know anything about that now, would you? You've once again found yourself listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. I'm your host, Alan S. Our look at those things that inspired the creation of Severance continues with another installment of the Severed Origins series. Up to this point, these Origins episodes have looked at properties Dan Erickson has listed as inspiration during his creation of Severance. Today, we're going to veer away from that directive just a bit. Instead of one of Dan's faves, I wanted to take a look at a movie mentioned by both Ben Stiller and Jessica Lee Gagne as visual, auditory, and artistic inspiration for Severance. It's a 1967 film directed by a French madman. His name is Jacques Tati, and the film is called Playtime. A disclaimer here, refiners, I will be the first to admit I am very monolingual. We've got a lot of French coming up. I'll be trying my best with the French pronunciations, but I'm not promising anything. Apologies in advance for butchering both names and words. I'm a bit ashamed to admit I was not familiar with Playtime prior to seeing it on these lists. It was also suggested as an Origins topic by several podcast listeners. I've always considered myself a bit of a film buff, but uh, I missed this one. As I've gotten into the research for this podcast episode, I've found commenters and fans who list Playtime as their favorite movie. One of those is eclectic director David Lynch, who called it quite possibly the greatest film ever made. Playtime has been called both groundbreaking and revolutionary. Tati considers it his masterpiece and most daring work, even though its dismal take at the box office left him bankrupt. The British Film Institute lists it as number 37 on their list of the 100 greatest films of all time. It's like nothing I've ever seen before. Unless you've seen it, I doubt it's like anything you've ever seen either. Playtime is categorized as a comedy, and there are laughs, but there is so much going on, it's a bit hard to get your brain around everything. The entire movie is set in a futuristic version of Paris, driven by hyper-consumerism. The old Paris of romance and light is barely glimpsed as a fleeting reflection of famous landmarks or a single flower stall looking out of place on a modern street corner. Tati's take on cinema includes a number of radical ideas. Tati doesn't really believe in plot, dialogue, or close-ups. There is a somewhat loose plot to playtime, but plot is not something that concerns Tati. He is more interested in the experience of observation. He's not much on character, either. There are only two regular and identifiable characters in Playtime. Tati plays an ongoing character he's portrayed in other films, Monsieur Hulot. Actress Barbara Denick portrays an American tourist named Barbara. The paths of these two characters cross randomly throughout a single 24-hour period while visiting the Paris of Tati's imagination. We need to talk for a quick minute about this character of Hulot. Coming into this picture, French audiences had already been exposed to Hulot in two other Tati movies from the 1950s. This is a character created by Tati to be an observer of the things happening in his films. He was beloved by French audiences much the same way they had embraced Chaplin's Tramp character. Some early reviews of Playtime were disappointed at the tiny role taken by Hulot. The character of Hulot is recognized by his overcoat, pipe, soft Homburg hat, striped socks revealed by too short pants, and a lurching walk. The socks are a nod to Buster Keaton, but Hulot's primary inspiration comes from Chaplin. The name Hulot, spelled H-U-L-O-T, is believed to be an echo of the word C-H-A-R-L-O-T, which is the French name for Charlie Chaplin's tramp character. Hulot seems to be the anti-tramp. He is big, 
clumsy, easily seen, and more distracted by what's happening around him than Chaplin. Several reviewers have noted that unlike Chaplin, Hulot is not the reason for any of these films. Whatever Hulot is doing is usually a sidebar. His timeline is rolled into the larger situations, but his choices do not dictate the action. The world is happening around Hulot, whether he participates or not. Although Tati refers to the playtime setting as a futuristic Paris, where he's shooting is an entirely created space. In the late 1950s and early 60s, Tati was seeing the traditional architecture and charm of Paris being overtaken by glass and steel. Playtime is his commentary on this ultra-modern Paris of the not-too-distant future. How he created this fictional version of Paris is an amazing story we will discuss in just a moment. First, let's talk more about Tati's take on cinema. As mentioned, he's not much on plot. He also doesn't care about dialogue. Roger Ebert, who loved this film to the point he has included it on his greatest films list, said Tati treats dialogue as either inaudible or disposable. We do hear dialogue in both French and English. The French is even subtitled, but what's said is not all that important. Tati's film is about the act of observation. We're watching people interact in this very neat and tidy world of glass and polished steel. Sitting on a bench in a crowded mall or on a busy city street and watching the people go by is a great analogy for this film. Only in playtime, the people you're watching have been highly choreographed. In theory, playtime sounded incredibly boring to me. I'm a 50-something American male movie watcher. I was raised on 10-second scenes, rapid-fire editing, car chases, explosions, and larger-than-life heroes with quotable catchphrases. Long shots that held for minutes sounded dull, but I was still curious. I remember I just wanted to take a quick look at playtime right after I downloaded it. I was not intending to watch the whole thing, but I'd read so much about it, I was curious. I popped it on for what was supposed to be a few minutes. I was a full one hour and eight minutes in before I stopped it. I remember the whole time I was watching, I was thinking, what is this? Where is it going? It's weirdly compelling. I truly found it hard to look away. There is something mesmerizing, almost hypnotic, about watching these scenes. The movements are highly choreographed, but they flow with the rhythm of real life. You drift from story to story as you watch people pass by. You get invested in these people you don't know and who you aren't really introduced to. There's a strong voyeuristic pull to the whole thing. Part of this distanced voyeuristic feeling comes from the fact that Tati gives us the big picture all the time. A close-up in cinema is generally considered a single performer in the frame. The viewer might see as much as the performer's upper torso and head, or as little as just their face in a traditional cinematic film close-up. Tati never shoots close-ups. He hates them, claiming they are crude and intrusive. This is why the closest you will ever get to anyone in playtime is a medium shot with at least a couple of people in it. Tati is happiest when he has the camera pulled all the way back, presenting a huge tableau with action happening in all corners. We as viewers aren't even instructed where to look. We're allowed to peruse the whole scene as we like. Tati's inventive choreography means there's something happening everywhere in the frame all the time. He sits on shots for long minutes, letting the action fill the screen. One reviewer said he believed the best way to watch this film was multiple times, and you should sit in different areas of the theater so you'll focus on different parts of the screen each time you watch. When I was first watching the opening scenes at Orly Airport, it reminded me of something I used to love as a kid. As a small child, I remember happily discovering books by Richard Scarry, a volume called What Do People Do All Day in particular. Scarry presented this same kind of approach to a scene through his very detailed and very busy illustrations. A scary street scene would include several different businesses, both sides of the street, even a cutaway of the pipes and tunnels going under the street. He would label everything from pipes to cars to machines to workers. A double-page spread in a Richard Scarry book could mean several minutes of spotting and enjoying all of the details. 
This same sense of, wow, there's a lot going on here, is pervasive throughout playtime. Like Richard Scarry, Tati fills every frame with tons of detail. We're left to discover it all on our own terms as we watch. Tati was so concerned about getting all of the depth and breadth of a scene, he chose to shoot on the much more expensive and harder-to-exhibit 70mm film. Let's take a quick look at this type of film stock. You've probably heard the term 70mm, but you might not know it is also, confusingly, referred to as 65mm within the industry. They're talking about the same film stock. The reason for the two different measurements is because the image itself is shot in a 65mm space. When transferred for exhibition, the 65mm image is placed on 70mm wide film stock. The other 5mm is where the four-channel soundtrack is located. Tati had a very complex stereo soundtrack, so the four channels were used extensively. 70mm film creates an enormous negative for each frame. You'd think it would only be double, but since they measure on a diagonal, the 65mm space is actually three and a half times larger than the industry standard 35mm film. 70mm not only catches a huge frame, but it's also very detailed. Tati shot with long focal length lenses, so the entire depth of the scene would be captured in crisp detail from front to back. Tati would only allow exhibitors with 70mm playback equipment to show his masterpiece. This severely limited where it could be exhibited. 70mm projectors are expensive. Most theaters didn't have the facilities. Those that did probably only had one screen which could show 70mm. This film stock issue was such a big deal, it kept the film out of the United States for several years. When it was finally shown in U.S. theaters in 1973, the prints had to be downsized to 35mm at the request of theater owners. Tati also shot in color, but the playtime sets were intentionally designed to look like they are black and white. This is something he had done in Mon Ockel, his previous Ulo film released in 1957. Here, instead of being truly black and white, the base colors of the scenes are really more a palette of gray. This gray base allowed Tati to sometimes provide a pop of color over what appeared to be a black and white scene. I didn't clock it during my watch, but I did read there is at least one red item in each scene of playtime. Tati also used the black and white base of the set as a way to introduce visual jokes like a green neon light in the pharmacy. It casts a green pall over most of the scene, including making the food at the lunch counter look very unappetizing. The real story of playtime isn't just how it's being shot, but where it's being shot. Tati envisioned a futuristic Paris, which really didn't exist yet, at least not to the point of his vision. He did look at Orly Airport as a possible set. It was deemed far too busy for him to control the action in as large a space as his shooting style demanded. Rather than try to make Paris fit his vision, Tati chose to create the Paris of his vision. Tati spent more than 17 million francs on an enormous three-square-block city set built entirely to his specifications. An official budget for playtime has never been published, but this 17 million franc figure was reported in multiple sources and is accepted as accurate at least when it comes to the cost of the set. How does that compare to modern film production costs? Well, 17 million francs was about 3.4 million U.S. dollars in 1964. According to usinflationcalculator.com, converting to 2023 dollars, his current day budget would have been about 33.7 million. Although this doesn't sound like a huge budget for a current day major motion picture release, at the time it was the most expensive film ever produced in France. Tati justified the enormous cost of his set, saying he'd have paid a similar amount to get a star like Sophia Loren or Elizabeth Taylor. Unfortunately, a set that costs as much as Elizabeth Taylor doesn't have the same audience draw when you list it on a movie poster. 
This enormous and expensive set was dubbed Tuttyville by those who worked there and those who drove by it every day. It was located just outside of Paris. The construction and eventual shooting of Playtime took more than three years. During this time, Tuttyville experienced numerous budget crises and natural disasters. Storm damage forced more than 1.4 million francs in repairs. The budget overruns forced Tutty to take out personal loans to cover the ever-escalating costs. Financing much of this film out of his own pocket would eventually bankrupt Tati. The enormous glass and steel structures of Tativille required more than 100 workers to build. They worked from October of 1964 until April of 1965 when filming began. The two main buildings in Tativille required 11,700 square feet of glass, 38,700 square feet of plastic, 31,500 square feet of timber, and 486,000 square feet of concrete because they had to pour all the streets. Tativille even included its own power plant. Once you see the incredible number of lights contained within all of the set pieces, it's easy to understand why. Tativille gave the director an unlimited playground where he could realize his vision. Instead of shooting at the Orly Airport in Paris, Tati created his own version of Orly as a part of Tattyville. It looks like the real thing because the backdrop and interiors were actually giant photographs, known as translites, of the interior of Orly. Tati discovered he liked working with the photographs. They didn't cause reflections like those he had to contend with around the real glass walls and doors. The construction of Tattyville was such a monumental undertaking, Tati was hoping the enormous set would continue to exist beyond the production of the film. Ideally, he wanted to see the space used for other film shoots, and he also hoped to create a film school within the site. Even though officials gave Tati some vague reassurances, this unfortunately was not to be. The entire set of Tattyville was eventually demolished in 1975 to make way for the A4 highway. I've been wrestling with how I was going to present this film to you as a podcast. I've decided I really can't, at least not the way I normally break down a movie. Since the podcast is audio only, I rely on grabbing little snips of dialogue to move the action along. Tati hates dialogue, so I don't have those auditory signposts with this movie. I can give you an overview of a scene, but you're going to have to watch it for yourself to get all the myriad details layered into every setup. I decided if I were to try to describe everything that's happening, I think I'd go a bit nuts. I did try to write it all out for the first few minutes, but then quickly gave up. I'm very sure I'd miss a lot of what's going on, and we'd have an 8 or 10 hour podcast nobody would want to hear. Since virtually everything Tati does is visual, you really have to see it to get it. That said, I do think I can give you a broad overview of the scenes that might be helpful. I also have some fun production details. This won't be the scene-by-scene breakdown like I normally do, but I will have some interesting points to throw in along the way. So if you're ready, refiners, it's time to take a look at this inventive and unique take on cinema, which inspired both Ben Stiller and Jessica Lee Gagne in their development of Severance. Please open the file called Playtime. Although it has virtually no dialogue, Playtime does have three listed writers. Tati, of course, he's involved in writing all of his movies. Additionally, Tati's regular writing partner Jacques Lagrange and American humorist, author, and actor Art Buckwald are also listed as writers. The path to production on this film is possibly filled with more twists and turns than Brazil. Production began in 1964 with the construction of Tattyville. Shooting was monumental. Tati is said to have shot for just over 360 days. This shooting schedule is more than three times the 118 days the Wachowskis shot for the incredibly complex Matrix movie. Tati then took nine months to edit it all together. In addition to the visuals, post-production also included creating the entire soundtrack. All of the sounds you hear in playtime were created by Foley artists then dubbed in posts. 
The initial cut, and the one shown to French audiences in 1967, was reportedly two and a half hours. This was cut down from the original script, which came in at just over three hours. Tati is said to have edited this original script on the fly. Crew members reported he ripped 50 pages out of it one day during shooting. There have been multiple shorter edits, but I couldn't find a solid timeline showing which edit was for which market. It looks like Tati would edit it down to just over two hours for international release. Playtime would not make it to the United States until 1973. The U.S. version was both transferred to 35mm film at the insistence of exhibitors and edited down to an hour and 43 minutes. Although I have also seen this 103-minute time listed for some of the international versions. I also think very possibly some of the authors I was reading were mistakenly calling the 103-minute version the 2-hour and 3-minute version. Regardless of how many edits there are, the one I reviewed was the 2-hour and 3- or 4-minute version. If you'd like to see Playtime, and you really should, streaming options are limited. It is only available through the Criterion app as a streamed title. Criterion also includes all of the shorts which come with the package DVD. You can preview the Criterion channel for free for seven days, but there is either a monthly or annual subscription after that, so make sure to cancel it on day six if you don't want to keep it. You can digitally buy or rent the two-hour and four-minute version from Amazon, but it is difficult to find as a download anywhere else. There was a copy posted to the Internet Archive, but it has been pulled down due to international copyright restrictions. Physical DVDs with extras are available through Criterion. You can also find both new and used DVDs of Playtime on Amazon and eBay. As always, huge spoilers for the 1967 film Playtime, but really, I think this movie is unspoilable. No matter how much you're told about it, you have to see it to really get it. Like Brazil, Tati starts things off in clouds. This was at a time when films started with credits, but this is a listing of all the credits. The reason is because Tati wanted to end the film cleanly with no post-show credits. We get a couple minutes of a happening bongo tune with the long lists of credits being projected over the clouds. Oh, and would you check the title, Refiners? We've got Play in Blue, Time in Red, just like the Severance Chip. In case you're doing a search, the title is two words. Sometimes you will see it written as the compound word Playtime. This is incorrect according to the director and the title card. Tati chose English words for the title to reflect the trend in Paris at the time. 60s-era Parisians thought the use of English words was more modern and cool than traditional French. This is why we will see other English words used throughout the film for things like parking, nightclub, and drugstore. The building we're seeing in the first shot is a miniature. All of the buildings that look like this one with rows and rows of sometimes lighted windows were miniatures. There are several of these structures. You'll see them all around the edges of the set appearing in the background of numerous shots. They were about 20 feet tall and on wheels. They could be moved around the set as needed for the backgrounds of various shots. We enter the Orly Airport following a couple of nuns with squeaky shoes. There are wings on their habits flapping in sync with their steps. The camera moves into a main hallway, then stops. Just like that, we are in Tati world. We're going to sit on this shot for nearly 90 seconds. Characters will come into the frame, do their bit, then leave. Look at the depth of this shot. All the way to the far windows, the details are clear and sharp. Those people visible at the far windows are real in this shot. They won't always be. In order to cut costs in some of the furthest depths of a shot, Tati would use full-sized cutouts of people mixed in with the living extras. To make it look real, the human extras were directed to interact with the cutouts. This appears to be the analog version of the 3D scanning of actors that was such a hot topic during the latest SAG-AFTRA strike. Tati was giving away real acting jobs to 2D mannequins all the way back in 1965. 
Although, truth be told, mannequins were probably the only performers with the patience for Tati's meticulous shooting style. I'll point out some of the cutouts when we get to those scenes. They are very visible at the back of the floor of cubicles. We cut to a reverse of the same hallway. A man in a turban steps out of a restroom stall and heads down the hallway. His sandals make a distinctive noise. Like with the nuns, this is an auditory joke. Sound jokes like this one are scattered throughout the movie, and they're usually pretty funny. Film critic Leonard Moulton said Tati was the only director working who could get a laugh out of the hum of a neon light. Check the layered action in just this one scene. We can still see the couple who were in the foreground of the last shot. They're now at the far end of the aisle and frame right of this shot. There goes a guy with a violin. A guy in a hat and coat is lurching along, looking a bit like Hulot. This was intentional. Hulot alikes are visible throughout the movie. Tati was really counting on the public's continued awareness and love for this character. Although Hulot, the character, had been featured in other movies at the time of this film's release, no one had seen Hulot on screen for 10 years. The rush of humanity continues. There's a pilot, a soldier, the elderly ladies, the priest, the guy with flowers, the washroom attendant, the class of school children. And I haven't even told you what any of them are doing. Hopefully you can see why trying to produce a detailed audio description of all this would be nuts. Those are actual working escalators in the distance. When we get closer, you'll see that the handrails don't move, but the steps do. If you watch the hands of the riders, you can see they're skimming them along the motionless handrails. Not all of the escalators we'll see even have working stairs. Some of them are dressed to look like escalators, but the steps are fixed. If you watch closely in the background of this scene, you'll see the same woman ride the downside, turn, and get back on the upside. Amazingly, everything you're seeing here is all a part of Tattyville. There's a loud chime and another auditory joke. No matter what the language, no matter which airport, those airport PA announcements are always fairly unintelligible. As the action moves over to an airline counter, we see some characters from the earlier shots now congregating in this scene. Check the jet out on the tarmac. With the right sound effect, pulling a miniature tail of a plane by the window can make for a very believable jet. The large crew of ladies coming through the custom gates are the Americans. This group includes Barbara, who is a recurring character throughout. She will eventually interact with Hulot, even dancing with him at a club much later tonight. You may have noticed I'm not doing actor bios when a new character is introduced. This is another difference between a Tati movie and, well, pretty much everything else. Tati does not like to hire actors. There are a couple of professional actors in this movie, but for the most part, Tati prefers to hire real people to do things they would normally do in real life. Why hire an actor to play a bus driver when you can just hire a real bus driver? He's already going to know the part, and as a bonus, he can really drive a bus. This is Barbara Denick's only role as an actress. She was a German au pair who happened to be Jacques Tati's neighbor. Not sure if this was good luck or bad luck on her part. Tati contracted her to appear as Barbara throughout the incredibly long and tedious production cycle of Playtime. Just shooting this movie took more than two years. Going through the experience destroyed any ambitions Ms. Denick may have had as an actress. She does have an entry on IMDb listing Playtime as her only role. She didn't even attend the premiere since it happened to fall the same weekend as her wedding. Barbara did not see the film until July of 2002 during a retrospective of Tati's work. She was 62 years old at the time. Likewise, the group of American women are not actors, but, well, a group of American women. Specifically, these are the wives of American military officers who were stationed in France at the time. Tati met them at a dinner party given by the Supreme Headquarters of Allied Powers in Europe. 
Initially, the women were excited about being in a movie, until they discovered how dull and tedious production really was, at least the way Tati does it. Additionally, the women were forced to leave the production before it was finished. France dropped out of NATO in 1966. By early 1967, with filming still underway, the U.S. officers and their wives had all been shipped back to the States. A dignitary identified as the president is making his way through the terminal. He's a feeble old man carrying a briefcase. Some kind of ticket is spinning out of the back of the briefcase in every shot where we see him pass by. This has to be a reference to then-French President Charles de Gaulle. De Gaulle was in office from January of 1959 until April of 1969. He was in his 70s throughout his term. Check the far background of the shot where the group of Americans is about to get on the escalators. There are a couple of cutouts mixed in with live performers here. Also, be watching for more Hulot alikes in the background. Tati was really counting on people recognizing this character. Outside of the airport, we get a very direct Hulot sighting. There's a guy who crosses through the shot after the group of Americans is sent to the hotels. He's wearing the Hulot hat, the socks, and the overcoat. He's also got the very weird gait as he's pushing a luggage cart. A woman coming out of the airport calls to him. It's a joke about the Americanization of his name. She is calling for Mr. Hulot. I'm not here. What are you talking about? My name's Smith. I think you made some sort of mistake. The airport is the first of six different major locations where we will spend time during the film. As Barbara settles in on the bus, remember, this is all Tativille, even when we're outside. The light poles, the traffic, that row of buildings going off into the distance, they're all miniatures and items created for these scenes. As Barbara leaves the airport in her tour bus, Hulot, in the meantime, has made his way into town on a public bus. The overcrowded bus dumps him out onto the sidewalk. We are now downtown. This row of modern-looking offices are, again, all a part of Tativille. The first two floors are full-sized and hold real people. The floors extending above are miniatures. You can see people in the windows, but they don't move. The building to the left of the row of offices is one of those movable miniatures. A workman looking for a light to his cigarette is approaching a doorman. This is a visual joke involving glass. There's a wall of glass between them, but we don't know it until the doorman has to direct the workman around the glass wall to one of the glass doors. Tati has a lot of creative fun with glass, glass doors, windows, and the reflections caused by them throughout the film. It so happens this doorman works in the building where Ulo has an appointment. Much of the action throughout playtime has the feel of a silent movie. Many of the actors' movements are big and over-accentuated. checking the address of the building is a good example. The outrageously complex intercom panel is full of fun lights and sounds. The doorman tackles it to announce Ulo's arrival. The doorman catching a smoke inside while on duty is both very French and really dates this movie. There's some fun with the soundtrack as Mr. Jaffard, the person meeting Hulot, approaches. We hear his footsteps from a long way down the hall. His trek takes so long, Hulot is instructed to sit back down and wait. Instead of going into a meeting, Hulot is placed in a waiting area with clear glass walls and low, modern-looking furniture. Hulot's actions in these kinds of scenes have the feel of Mr. Bean without getting himself in quite so much trouble. Hulot has fun with the noisy chair cushions while waiting. We can see the floor is also a bit slick. As Hulot waits, notice the action continuing out on the street. It's all been choreographed and is controlled by Tati, including all of the vehicle movements. Remember the detail about a red pop of color in every scene? Each portrait in the waiting area features a red boutonniere. Another man, a salesman by the look of his suit and briefcase, is ushered into the waiting area with Hulot. The interactions of these two men are punctuated by the sounds of the cushions, starting with a very funny greeting sequence. (coughs) 
After playing around in the waiting area, Hulot is eventually ushered into a large office space filled with cubicles. Before he can meet with his appointment, Hulot accidentally wanders into a very modern-looking elevator. We cut to an exterior shot of the building with a fun effect. You can see the bright yellow light of the elevator as it passes by floors going up into the building, and then it comes back down. Although fun, this effect really points up the miniature aspect of these buildings. Here, I feel like the size of this building becomes pretty obvious. This elevator is a fake. The door opens and closes on this floor, but it doesn't go anywhere. When we get to the building where the trade show is happening, that's a real working elevator running between the two floors. The golden light inside the elevator points up the very black and white frame palette. Ulo's elevator ride causes him to miss out on his appointment. By the time Ulo gets back to the floor with Jafard, the man he was supposed to meet, Jafard is gone. This, of course, sends Ulo on a quest to find him. There's an iconic shot just after the 23-minute mark. Ulo is on a balcony overlooking the cubicle floor. This was a PR still, and it appears in numerous articles and reviews of the film. Check the folks standing against the far glass wall behind the cubicles. Many of them are more cutouts mixed in with actual moving people. This whole sequence is all about fun with cubicles and intercoms. We hold on an overview shot for a full minute watching the action play out. As Mr. Jaffard is searching for Hulot, we notice an interesting fact about this escalator. It's not in motion like a normal escalator, and if you look closely, these are actually fixed stairs dressed up to look like an escalator. When Hulot approaches the outside doors of the building he's in, we get one of the best reflection jokes in the whole movie. Jaffard had just been at that door and moves to the left along the same wall where Hulot is looking. Jaffard's reflection appears in the windows across the street. The positioning of the reflection makes it look as though Jafard is in the building across the street. He's actually standing to Ulo's left in the same building. It's a very effective bit and amazing Tati was able to pull it off as a shot. The angles on those large windows had to be perfect in order to pull this off. The reflection across the street forces Ulo to cross as he's waving to the reflection. The second-story down-angle shots from outside are incredible. Remember, this is all a set. While chasing Jafar's reflection, Ulo stumbles into a trade show happening in the almost identical building across the street. This trade exhibition is the third major location in Playtime. The bus-carrying Barber's Group of Americans is letting off in the same downtown area as Ulo's meeting. They get out near a travel agency. The posters in the windows of the travel agent are a visual joke. They feature exotic destinations like London, but each magical vacation destination has a boring box of a modern building superimposed over it. The boring modernization Ulo is seeing in Paris seems to have already spread throughout the world. Barbara pauses at the tent of a street flower vendor. This poor woman looks so out of place on this bustling and modern street corner. This is Tati's nod to the old Paris he longs for. It's being swallowed up by the modern architecture of the new city to the point this modest shop looks very out of place sitting here on this street. The teen boys in the letterman jackets with the blaring radio do date this scene. Cars keep moving, people keep walking, and we are still entirely inside Tati's vision. Barbara has to stop taking pictures as her crew is ushered into the trade show. The trade show, which also features some American stuff, according to the guide, is a chance for Tati to have a field day. The booze features such modern wonders as reading glasses with lenses that flip up so ladies can apply makeup. We see a mop with headlights. One of the funniest displays is a slamless door. No matter how hard you fling it shut, it does not make a sound. This is an easy joke to pull off in a movie with an entirely dubbed soundtrack. Just don't include a sound for the slamming door. Don't miss another of Tati's nods to the old Paris. As Barbara enters the building through one of the full-length glass doors, she pauses with it at just the right angle to reflect a full-length shot of the Eiffel Tower. She looks back over her shoulder longingly at it, but continues on into the trade show building. 
It's a visual representation of the pull of consumerism and modern conveniences outweighing the joys of the old city. As usual, Barbara is late because she's dilly-dallying. This is why we hear her name being called all the time by other members of the tour group. This reflection effect was achieved with a large picture. Tati does the same kind of thing in just a bit with the Arc de Triomphe. Although we aren't recognizing performers, I did want to point out one gentleman in the cast who has an interesting backstory. At the 28-minute mark, after Hulot has crossed to the other building, a group of businessmen arrives on a bus. You'll see a man in a black suit flag them down with brochures. This is British journalist Peter Lennon. He's not an actor, and he did not audition to be in this movie. He had visited Tativille in March of 1965, just as filming was about to begin. He was there to do a story on Tati and the enormous and expensive Tativille. As is the case with interesting people who get too close to Tati's gravitational field, Lennon was pulled into the production. Lennon was hired to act as the chaperone for this group of businessmen, and he also wrote some English dialogue for the film. After this scene was filmed, Lennon became bored with the production and left. The dialogue he'd written was also not being used, so he went back to journalism. A year later, when Tati was ready to shoot the same group of businessmen coming back down in the elevator, he called Lennon. Lennon declined, so the chaperone for the group has disappeared when the men returned to the bus. I don't know if Tati was annoyed with Lennon's defection, but I did notice Lennon isn't in the official cast. The trade show is a wonder of modern conveniences. There's the electric broom, although it's probably not what you'd think. It's actually a mop with headlights, and the ladies are making it a big hit. When the man doing the demo runs it under his desk, we can see a nice square of light showing the cleaning area. It would appear there is a light actually mounted under the desk, which comes on when the broom is pushed under. This is similar to many of Tati's effects. They happen live. It's like we're watching a play. Any effect that happens on the stage has to happen in real time without cuts or camera tricks. There is a lot of material to be seen throughout the trade show. The trash can in the form of a broken Greek column is a hoot. The banner says, throw out Greek style. The marble platform it's sitting on contains the foot lever to pop the marble-looking lid. The slamless door booth includes a poster on the wall showing what look like the same buildings we've seen outside. This must be the home office. Its design looks just like everything else we've seen so far in this very modern and very boring city. Uloa likes are everywhere throughout the trade show. One of them has a seat at the desk of the Golden Silence Door Slam guy. He taps out his pipe and starts going through the desk. This is very forward. He then takes a brochure and leaves with no explanation as to what he was doing. A group of Asian businessmen pours off the elevator. The real Ulo has somehow gotten himself mixed in with this group. When he arrives at the floor with the trade show, he is, of course, mistaken for the guy who'd had a seat and tapped out his pipe. They are dressed very much alike. The trade show is a constant swirl of activity. It's revealed Ulo is not the same man who tapped out his pipe at the desk. He's allowed to leave to continue to peruse the trade show. After making their way through the trade show, the group of Americans is ushered back outside, where they are again counted. Counting and recounting the tour group is a constant running gag throughout. We see more posters in the travel agency. Stockholm and Mexico both feature the same big, boring square buildings in their promo posters. The United States gets two nods. One is a general poster simply promoting USA as a travel destination. Another is specifically promoting Hawaii. Yes, Hawaii is one of the United States, but I get it. As a travel destination, Hawaii definitely deserves its own poster. These travel posters both also feature the big, square, boring building we've seen in every other poster and all around the edges of town. There's an Avis rental car desk in the travel agency. This is product placement. Whenever we see actual company logos, they were paying to be there. Don't miss the Avis attendant in his very rolly chair shooting back and forth 
behind the desk as he's waiting on everyone. There's a great shot from the back of the booth showing the wheels of his chair and his flying feet in isolation. Out on the street, four men, all dressed in dark suits and fedoras, get into four dark cars, all parked next to each other. They all check their meters at the same time before getting into their very similar-looking cars. The buses are a great pop of color on the drab street. During the trade show, Ulo has run into a friend from the war. He's invited Ulo over to his apartment for the evening. Ulo catches a bus out on the street. There's a fun gag here with a floor lamp. A man who got on the bus to stop before Ulo is carrying a lamp with a long pole for a body and a very high top. He seems to have bought it at the trade show. On the bus, the main tube of the lamp looks like one of the vertical posts designed to be held onto by riders. This lamp isn't mounted to anything, but several standing men grab it. Ulo gets on the bus, and he grabs an actual support post. When the bus starts moving, the lamp starts to fall over. Ulo reaches over to grab it and writes it. It's getting dark in the city as the buses are moving along the street. We can see one of the miniature buildings in the background. It starts to light up. Entire floors light at once going up the building. When Ulo gets off the bus, we get the capper to the lamp joke. The man with the lamp also gets off the bus. Ulo is still absent-mindedly holding on to the lamp as he's reading his newspaper, unaware that he's stepped off the bus. The man with the lamp, who's now wanting to head home, has to explain to Ulo that he needs to let go. A man calls to Ulo from the sidewalk. He is the friend Schneider, who Ulo knows from the army. Schneider is bragging about buying a new car for cash. He's also wanting to show off his very modern apartment. It just so happens Mr. Jaffard, who Ulo was trying to meet earlier today, also lives in this same apartment building. The apartment visit is one of the most interesting sequences in the movie because we never go into the apartment. The entire scene is played out with us, the camera, staying out on the street looking in the enormous open windows. We meet Schneider's wife and daughter, kind of. We see them through the window as they are introduced to Hulot. Four apartments are visible from our vantage point. Two are at street level and two are on the second floor. All of the living room windows face onto the street and there are no curtains on any of these wall-sized windows. The joke being played out here is based on the position of the TV sets. Each of these modern apartments has a television set mounted in one of the walls of the living room. It so happens the two apartments next to each other share a common TV wall. When the group in the left-hand apartment is watching TV, they are looking frame right. The group on the right-hand side is looking frame left. When both TVs are on, it looks like each group is watching and reacting to the group in the next apartment. Tati plays with this structure for several minutes. It begins to look like the group in the apartment with Ulo are reacting to what is happening in the next apartment. We can see both groups from our vantage point. They eventually appear to start reacting to each other, but in reality, each group is looking at a solid wall with a television mounted in it. Buses pass. People walk by. The action continues in the apartment as we continue to watch from the street. Ulo's friend is pulling out a projector screen to show vacation slides. Ulo decides to excuse himself before the slideshow gets going. Tati continues to play with the apartment structure and the TV positions for several more minutes. We even discovered that Ulo got himself stuck in the foyer of the building as he was leaving. The whole thing was so modern he couldn't figure out how the door worked. Back at the hotel where the Americans are staying, we see Barbara. A maid has delivered a freshly cleaned and pressed emerald green dress to her room. She's planning an evening out on the town. Another tour group arrives at the hotel on a bus. As the doorman is opening the glass door for them, we see another reflection. This time, it's the Arc de Triomphe, which must be right across the street. None of the tourists even pauses to have a look. Barbara and her group are making their way out for the evening. It's the Economic Airlines Evening Tour. They're coming down the hotel escalator in their evening finery as the new tour group, Group E, is making their way up the escalator. We cut to the Royal Garden Restaurant and Nightclub. This is where everyone is going to be spending their evening. Barbara and her group, Ulo, everyone. The movie spends more than 40 minutes in the Royal Garden and a lot is happening. 
The Royal Garden sequence was incredibly complex with action happening everywhere throughout the restaurant. Tati would set up the action in the background, check it in the camera, then set up what was happening in the foreground and check it. Tati took a total of seven weeks just to shoot the Royal Garden scenes. Not only was it complicated and chaotic, but in order to preserve continuity, he shot these scenes in sequential order. The main joke is that this is opening night. It's the first time the Royal Garden has been open to the public and they are not ready. We can see workmen still cleaning up as guests are arriving. The coat check girl is vacuuming and the owner is still consulting with the architect. There are significant electrical issues throughout the restaurant. One of the most notable problems is the sign at the entrance. It's a swirling animated question mark which circles the Royal Garden's logo and points into the doorway. This light array flashes and sizzles until it starts to catch the attention of passing drunks. This sign somehow lures them into the club like moths to a flame. Back in the Royal Garden's kitchen, away from the public, the walls are still unfinished. Construction workers are trying to get this size right on the window for food coming out of the kitchen. A workman is measuring a fish platter as it is being served to get an idea as to the needed maximum size of the opening. A loud American businessman arrives. He is an instigator and center of activity throughout the Royal Garden scenes. Several regular characters swirl through the crowd of customers and interact during these scenes, we meet and get involved in the various stories happening throughout the dining room. There's a waiter who tears a pocket on his coat. He can't be in front of diners like that, so he's shuttled out onto the patio. From there, he becomes spare parts for all of the other waiters. Anything they stain or damage, they can go to the guy outside for a replacement. In Roger Ebert's review of Playtime, he calls this waiter the most sympathetic person in the movie. From there, he becomes spare parts for all of the other waiters. Anything they stain or damage, they can go to the guy outside for a replacement. In Roger Ebert's review of Playtime, he calls this waiter the most sympathetic person in the movie. There's a tile in the dance floor that just won't stay down. One of the waiters is applying cement to it as diners are being seated. It, of course, eventually winds up glued to a shoe. The mater d' makes sure to step well over it each time he passes. There are short circuits everywhere in the Royal Garden dining room. A waiter kicks at the marker lights by the stairs to get them to light. The band arrives and begins to play. More diners are being seated despite the construction issues. A running gag involves the backs of the dining room chairs. They are all metal in the shape of the Royal Garden logo, a five-pointed crown. It was one of the points of the crown that caught the waiter's pocket with the torn uniform. The chairs must have been painted very recently because we discover all of these crowns are sticking to the backs of men's coats. The market leaves looks like a brand. One female diner even has these marks on her bare back. Every couple and every interaction is a story. The crowd keeps building. The dance floor is filling. More waiters are trying to serve the full tables. These stories are all thrown on the screen at once. Keeping tabs on everything that's happening is left for us as the viewer to figure out. At one point, we do leave the dining room briefly. The Royal Garden manager is getting a literal headache from all of the problems happening around him. The manager summons the doorman and asks if he could run to get more of a certain headache medicine from the corner drugstore. The manager has the old box, so the doorman will know what to get. The doorman leaves his post and we follow him about half a block to the drugstore. A couple of items to note here. We can see a few logos on the walls of far buildings as the doorman is hustling to the drugstore. The Marlboro and Phillips logos were paid product placements. Not sure about this sign up high on a far building that says New York Herald Tribune. The Herald Tribune was a well-respected newspaper operating in New York until 1966, but I don't think they'd have done a product placement in a French movie. Is this supposed to be the Paris office of a New York newspaper, maybe? Be watching the neon word drugstore. As the doorman approaches on the street, we can read it from the outside. This sign is going to flip completely, so it can also be read when we are inside the building. We see that Hulot is also making his way into the drugstore. This is where he and the Royal Garden cross paths. 
Tati has a lot of fun with the enormous green neon lighted first aid cross. It casts a green pall over everything in the drugstore, including the food at the counter. Everything on the glass display shelves looks a bit unappetizing. Ulo has a sniff from a few very green-looking plates, then decides on a sandwich from a lower shelf. The neon sign also emits a constant hum. This sound somehow manages to add to the gross look of the green food. The doorman has the headache powder and is returning to the club when he spots Ulo. This guy says he couldn't stop earlier when he'd seen Ulo on the street, but now Ulo is going to be his guest down at the Royal Garden. This is how Tati brings everyone together for the big finale scene. Back at the Royal Gardens, the architect has given up. He's leaving as Ulo and the doorman approach. We find the evening has been too successful. They were planning for 50 diners, but so far more than 120 have been served. The chef says he's out of everything except for cold chicken. The owner tells him to serve that. The band is setting up on the stage. As soon as the music starts jumping, the crowd heads to the dance floor. Remember the fish that came out of the kitchen window at the top of the scene? It's been seasoned several times and lit on fire. Somehow it is still being cycled around the dining room. When Ulo arrives at the Royal Garden main door, there's a bit of business here that doesn't quite work. It's important for Ulo to smash this glass door. It's going to set up a ton of business for the doorman holding just the door handle in coming scenes. Ulo has decided he's not dressed for attending dinner at the Royal Garden. The doorman is trying to get him to come in. This bit starts from the outside. The glass door is actually there in the shot from the street. Ulo and the doorman are fighting over the large golden door handle in the glass door. When the shot reverses, we are looking at the same door from the inside, only this time the glass itself is actually gone. If you watch the door handle, you can see it's moving a lot as the two men fight over it. They are trying to make it look like the glass is still there, but it's hard to fight over and also hold steady something as big as that gold door handle. The fight culminates with the door shattering. Again, we're looking at an effect that has to happen live, like a play. There is a sheet of something between us and the door which shows the shatter effect. Then, a line of broken glass is dropped from the top edge of the door jamb. If you don't look too closely, it kind of works. If this were a play, that would be a fine onstage effect. After the shatter, the floor is covered with large chunks of the broken glass door. These chunks of broken glass are going to be cleaned up and eventually disposed of as ice in a bucket of champagne. Hulot is holding the large door handle as the doorman is cleaning up the mess. A couple enters, and seeing the door handle, they think Hulot is holding the glass door. They open the handle. The doorman sees this and picks up on it immediately. He begins to use the large gold door handle as though it were still mounted in the glass door. No one questions it. The diners interact with the handle as though the door were still there. The doorman even manages to move the handle to catch a patron that didn't tip. This is an ongoing bit with the large door handle which continues to pay off for several minutes. It is some great physical and visual comedy, even if getting to it was a bit clunky. Back in the dining room, the action is building. Diners are out of butter. The bar is filling up with inebriated patrons. Another waiter tears a coat on one of the chairs. Time to hit the guy in the patio for spare parts. Ulo is being bounced around the lobby like a pinball. At one point, he is staggering after banging into a pillar. The manager mistakes him for a drunk and tries to have him thrown out. But no, the doorman rescues him and directs him to the dining room. Ulo is introduced around. Barbara is there in her emerald green dress. She does stand out in the dining room, except for the occasional pop of color in a hat. The other ladies are all dressed in either black or white. Ulo winds up on the dance floor with Barbara. The band is jamming. I found myself cringing at the after-dinner cigarettes being lit up by some of the diners. A cigarette girl is actually working the floor with a big tray strapped to her front. 
So glad we don't have to put up with that in restaurants anymore. The place is heating up with all of the people and the dancing. The architect who was persuaded to stay is trying to get the air working. It's gotten so hot we see things melting all over the dining room, including a model of an airplane on the back of the bar. Ah, but the plane revives once the air starts to blow. A section of partition falls. The loud American businessman turns it into a VIP area. I can't really describe it. You'll just have to check it out. There are electrical shorts happening everywhere. Sparks are flying in the ceiling and lights are flickering throughout the club. There's a visual joke where a waiter appears to pour champagne into the hats of five different ladies. The poor waiter in the courtyard has swapped his towel, coat, pants, and even a shoe. He's a pitiful mess. As the crowd continues to cycle in and out of the club, the doorman is still working the big golden door handle like it's a solid door. Unfortunately, he's unable to keep the drunks out without a real door. They don't pay attention to the handle and walk right past it. Meanwhile, a bucket of champagne is getting iced down with chunks of the glass door. More of the club is collapsing to the point the band decides it's not safe to keep playing. When the music stops, the crowd starts to chant, wanting more. The loud American businessman takes the stage looking for a piano player from the crowd. Barbara, of course, steps up to play. A waiter has dropped his tie in the sauce of the platter he was serving. He hits up the guy in the courtyard to swap ties. Somehow dishes are still coming out of the kitchen, even though we were told the kitchen was down to nothing but cold chicken. Ulo has a laugh with Barbara at the piano. At some point, a woman has joined Barbara on stage. She claims to be a singer and gets Barbara to accompany her. The bar stools are rather tall. The drunks keep falling off of them. Eventually, after one patron had fallen, they flip the stool over and put him inside the base of it. It manages to keep him upright at the bar. Another drunken patron has asked Ulo for directions. Ulo grabs a paper map, but he puts it over a marble panel when he's talking about it. In the eyes of the drunk asking for directions, the designs on the marble panel become an extension of the map. The poor guy spends several minutes tracing streets in the marble with his finger. The gags continue with the doorman and his golden handle. At one point, he convinces two men they are on either side of the door. He opens it so they can both get through. We discover we've been at the Royal Garden all night. The sun is coming up. Out on the street, a street cleaner passes by. The enormous building seen across the street is another of Tati's miniatures. The flower vendor is out on the street early. Barbara snaps another picture. The drugstore seems to be 24-hour. Many of the Royal Garden patrons make their way down to the drugstore for breakfast. I spotted another reflection of Tati's old Paris happening here. Two delivery men meet at the back door of the drugstore. When the door is open, there is a very definite reflection of a white building with domed spires. I believe this is the Catholic Basilica of the Sacred Heart Cathedral in Paris or the Sacre Cour de Montmartre. It overlooks the entire city of Paris and suburbs. This spot is the second most visited tourist destination in Paris behind the Eiffel Tower. The other two reflections in the movie were well documented in several reviews. I did not see a mention of this reflection anywhere, so I'm guessing at the location based on an image search of white cathedrals in Paris. The action in the drugstore is as frenzied and hectic as it was in the Royal Garden. More stories are playing out as the group who have just been out all night start to mingle with workers who are just getting started with their day. The action moves onto the street. Open-air shops are already busy. A table is set up selling cheese right out on the street. The word used to identify it is the English cheese. A couple of ladies that look more old world see this. One of them asks, why can't they use the French? Hulot purchases a gift at this open bazaar for Barbara. Her bus arrives. She then utters one of the few connective pieces of dialogue in the whole movie. Oh, that's my bus coming over there. My bus is coming. I have to go. Oh, goodbye. She runs to it before Ulo can give her the scarf he purchased. Ultimately, he has to hand it to someone to deliver it to the bus. 
Barbara's bus then departs into the final scene of the movie. It goes into a crazy three-lane roundabout, which looks all the world like a merry-go-round. The central pole of the roundabout is a red and white spiral. A woman riding on the back of a motorcycle comes by, and she's bobbing up and down, further adding to the merry-go-round effect. The bus passes by a mechanic shop where cars are bobbing up and down on hydraulic lifts. The Pirelli sign in the back of the shop is another product placement. The bus makes its way back to the airport. This final shot on the road leading to the airport is a real road. This is not Tottyville. There had been an idea that Tati wanted to extend this ending. He had a plan to include shadows of the characters that would come into the movie theater and be projected on the walls after the closing. By the time the movie was ready for exhibition, he was so far over budget and it had been delayed by so many months, this shadow plan was eventually dropped. And that's the end of the movie. I cannot stress how much of a glancing overview this was. There is so much happening in every frame of this movie, you really need to do some exploring on your own. Although it's considered his greatest accomplishment and one of the greatest movies ever made, Playtime was a bust upon its release. It was generally panned by critics and did not do well in theaters. Only showing it in theaters equipped with 70mm projectors was part of the problem. A two-and-a-half-hour movie with almost no dialogue was also a tough sell to audiences. Once it had made its way to the U.S., it was recognized by New York Times critic Vincent Carnaby as, quote, Tati's most brilliant film. Although it was nice to get the recognition, this support did not help the financial success of the picture in the United States. It was as big a commercial flop in the U.S. as it had been in France. Now, in retrospect, reviewers have come around to regarding Playtime as a great achievement. Out of 55 professional reviews reported on Rotten Tomatoes, Playtime has notched a 98%. The audience score puts it at an outstanding 89%. Playtime is also included in Steven Schneider's list of the 1,001 movies you must see before you die. It's easy to see how timing, atmosphere, set construction, and choreography were all influences on Ben Stiller and Jessica Lee Gagne when it came to creating the aesthetic of severance, especially down on the severed floor. So that's a quick look at Playtime Refiners. You really should go check this one out on your own. Some quick housekeeping before we shut things down for the day. As you may have heard, the Severed Podcast now has a Patreon page. A number of folks have already joined the fun as $5 a month patrons. Join us. Tons of severance talk, plus some behind-the-scenes info and other goodies you won't get from the regular podcast. You can find the Severed page at patreon.com slash severedpod. That's patreon.com slash severedpod. Make a note of it for your Audi, and I'll shut the code detectors off for today. Your support is greatly appreciated. There are expenses associated with podcasting. Plus, I need to make a few bucks off it in my retirement. Help me keep the servers humming. Sign up for $5 a month. I'm also looking forward to producing Severed for Season 2. Once we have a Season 2, it's easier to justify podcasting instead of something like, you know, a real job. If I'm actually making money at the podcasting, please go help out at patreon.com slash severed pot. And speaking of season two of Severance, we haven't had an official word, but all the stops are off. No more strikes, no more reasons to keep from producing season two. Keep an eye on the Severed Facebook page for the latest updates on production schedules and any potential release dates. The origin episodes continue to attract refiners and fellow Severance junkies. Thanks for staying with me through the off-season. I've appreciated the notes from folks saying the Origins apps are helping to keep them sane during the wait. Same here. I will keep you posted as I look into future Origins titles. All right, refiners, it's time for you to be getting back home. Please exit via the elevator. And remember, as always, stagger your exits. You've been listening to Severed, the ultimate severance podcast. Severed is written, produced, and hosted by Alan Stair. Severed is not endorsed by Red Hour Productions, Endeavor Content, or Apple TV+. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Severance, the Severance logo and all video and audio of Severance and Severance characters are registered trademarks of Red Hour, Endeavor Content, 
Apple TV Plus or their respective copyright holders. Please make sure to leave a 5-star rating and review for Severed at Apple Podcasts.